This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're back today talking with Joe Heschmeyer, my, my most frequent guest. I think this is episode 22. I always love having you on, Joe. Uh, he's got a new book out called The Eucharist is Really Jesus, How Christ's Body and Blood Are the Key to Everything We Believe. It's published on Catholic Answers, where Joe is a staff apologist. Joe, thanks for being with us today. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So uh, you started out this this journey, gosh, what about 2010 you started blogging? Uh, 2009, actually. So yeah, it was April yeah. of 2009, I believe. I came into the church in 2011, of course. Joe was my um, transition from, okay, I need to know more about this thing that I've just now gotten into, and and I've got all these questions coming from family members, and how do I think with the church when I have not thought with the church for my entire uh, existence? And so he was processing a lot of these things on his blog at the time, Shameless Popery. Uh, the archives are still there at shamelesspopery.com. Most of his blogging these days is done at catholic.com. Um, you can also, uh, Joe has recently begun doing podcast. He got the podcast bug. I'm, I'm going to say it was my fault. Uh, and you did, you did a couple, you did the Catholic, uh, cath pod for a while. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh with Chloe Langer. And then, yeah. uh, after that with Jenny Punswick, uh, I did, you know, just a weekly co-hosted podcast. Yeah. Now you've got the uh, the you kept the name. You're like it. It's shameless. Popery needs to live on in some format. And so you've got the shameless Popery podcast, which you can either listen to on the audio uh, by going to catholic.com/slash/audio/slash/sp, or you can just Google it. Uh, but you can also watch those episodes over on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash/at/shameless_popery, and and see it in all of its visual greatness. So let's uh, let's talk about this new book. The Eucharist is really Jesus. My first question. Uh, is how much of this process of writing books, because you've begun doing that quite frequently now. You've got several that are we've talked about here on the show that are uh, really well-written, lovely books, whether it be from defending the church's most distinctive doctrine, talking about the papacy. Uh, that book's called Pope Peter. You've got one, the early church was Catholic. You've got one on the life of St. Joseph, and you've got one on identity uh, called Who Am I, Lord? Uh, all of these are wonderful books. You've written so extensively for so long, how often do you go and mine those earlier works and just kind of reformulate them for books? Or is it a brand new process every time you you approach a book? That's a great question. Uh, it varies a lot. So I could tell you where each of those books you named came from. So mm. um, Who Am I, Lord? Finding Your Identity in Christ is the first book I ever wrote. And I was leaving seminary and I'd formed a lot of my interior identity around being a seminarian and realized spiritually that I needed to found it more centrally on Jesus and not on what I was doing for Jesus. And, and this led to a, uh, this was kind of, this spiritual journey was going on at the same time. I, I knew some focused missionaries who were dealing with their own uh, sense of failure around not getting immediate success on campus. Yeah. And and so here we like this was a group of us who were trying to do things to please God and, and feeling like it wasn't going the direction we thought it was. And so we uh I asked to lead our weekly Bible study a couple of times. I, they like invited me in and I said, Can yeah. I can I lead a couple of these? And wanted to do it on uh, success and failure. 
And as I explored what the Bible had to say on success and failure, it led to this conversation about identity. And that turned into my first book. Um, so that one was not coming from almost anything I'd written. And it's right. very unlike most other books I've, I've written, most of the blog posts I've written. I mean, usually I'm doing much more traditional apologetics. Here's why Catholicism's true. Here's why these, you know, atheist objections or Protestant objections or whatever uh, don't, you know, defeat the Catholic claim. And this was kind of out of left field, out of a much more personal kind of place. Um, Pope Peter, uh, that was built, the the core structure was a series of blog posts I'd done uh, where I wanted to explore what the Bible had to say about Peter. And I I mean, I, you can recognize this chapter was inspired by this blog post, but I'm not just like copy pasting. It's, it's much more like <laughs> I'm taking the core argument and what you're doing for a blog post compared to what you're doing for a book chapter where you're engaging, mm-hmm. I think, much more in the scholarship, much more in the, you know, popular objections. Uh, but it, it, you can see the connections there. Uh, the book on St. Joseph, A Man Named Joseph, was inspired by Pope Francis's document on St. Joseph in, in launching the year for Joseph. And I, that led me to writing a short book that, again, I had not written anything close to. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, Early Church was the Catholic Church. And this book, there's there's much more traditional apologetics. Early Church was the Catholic Church. I'd wanted to do something on that. I've written a lot on the Early Church. But the organization structure and the arguments are all basically new. And then this book was inspired in a in a really strange kind of way. So sorry, by the way, to go through a whole like. Oh no, that's fine. <laughs> all, all that's to say, I, I have no idea how much people want to or don't want to hear about here are these other books I've written. But I, I, there's not a one size fits all kind of solution. But for yeah. for the Eucharist is really Jesus. Um, when I was a seminarian, I was in Estonia for four weeks, and I was not able to do a whole lot because I don't speak any Estonian. So, you know, I, I could serve mass. I could have kind of halting conversations where I'm speaking English slowly to people who speak Russian or Estonian and feeling like, oh, what am I doing here? I can't, I can't do anything. But the missionaries of charity were there and it had a small community and English is their official language. So all of them spoke passable English. Uh, and so I'd asked the priest I was staying with if I could go and, you know, do something with the missionaries of charity, you know, give talks or, or do something. And like I said, I was there for four weeks. I want to say it was my last week. I don't remember. I think it was my last week that I was in town. And uh, he tells me on a Monday. So I finally spoke to the missionaries of charity. They'd like you to come and give uh, three talks on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, one hour each. <laughs> that's not a lot of notice. Uh, what are they on? He says, uh, I don't know, but we're having English language mass tonight. Um, so they'll be there and you can ask them. So I, I go and ask them and they said, Oh no, 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 not Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I said, tomorrow. <laughs> and so this is Monday night and, and they're telling me I'm going to be giving an hour long kind of reflection and talk for this religious community of very holy sisters. Right. Uh, and I'm like, what topic? And the Eucharist. So I spent a long time in the Adoration Chapel uh, and and I really came away with this sense that in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the seven seals that are unlocked by the lamb standing as though slain, that this was a prism through which to understand Eucharistic theology. And I'd never had this insight before. I'd never heard of this before. But this this notion that if you remember this scene in Revelation, there's an, a scroll with seven seals and no one in heaven, earth, or under the earth can open it. 
And mm-hmm. so John begins to despair and he's weeping. And then he's told not to weep because the lion of Judah can open it. And then in the next verse, we don't see a lion. We see a lamb standing as though slain, which is a very Eucharistic image. You know, this is, and it's a very paradoxical image because I always joke, you know, I'm, I'm from the city, but even I know that the posture of a, a slain animal is not typically standing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've got the, uh, the lion who is a lamb. You've got the one standing, though slain. And so there's something paradoxical about this. It's Jesus coming to us in the strength of his weakness and in this very Eucharistic kind of way. Because if you understand the way that the lamb represents the Last Supper and represents uh, the Passover before it, then this image should sound very Eucharistic. And so there are these seven seals that are only openable through that kind of understanding. Only when you know the lamb who stands as though slain uh, can you make sense of this other stuff. Otherwise it is just off limits. It is sealed. It's inscrutable. And so then uh, you connect that with the road to Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with the two disciples to Emmaus and he's telling them all of it. They don't know it's him, but he's telling them all about uh, how the old Testament prophesied that the Messiah had to die and their hearts are burning within them, but they don't realize it. They only realize that Jesus was making himself known in the scriptures after what? Well, after they see him in the breaking of the bread, mm-hmm. they get to the house in Emmaus and they invite him in for dinner. And Luke says that he takes the bread and he blesses and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And then they recognize him. Their, it's a, their eyes were opened. And then they, they have a seven mile journey. They go back to Jerusalem to announce they've seen the risen Lord. And Jesus well, disappears from sight right there. Yeah, go ahead. What I, what I love about this story is that they're asking Jesus to stay with him because it's yeah. getting dark. And because it's getting dark, it's not safe to be out. Yeah. And yet after that encounter with Jesus, it doesn't matter that it's no longer safe to be out. They get back on the road and make the journey. Absolutely. Which is, that's a, a brilliant point. And I think is a good counterpoint to the fear that the apostles are experiencing this yeah. same day, that they are hiding in the upper room. And so here are these two lay people who have to go out in the middle of the night to proclaim Jesus to them. Uh, and there's, I mean, if you wanted to go down that road, there's, there's a lot of commentary one could, could make about the role of, of Christ-centered laity in terms of encouraging yeah. sometimes fearful clergy. There's, there's another point here as well that um, these are— even these laity, even these lay people, they are followers of Jesus. They've been with him for a long time. Uh, Here we are in the midst of the Eucharistic revival here in the United States. And the people that know about it, that talk about it, uh, and are aware that it's happening, it seems the, the conversations I've heard are a sense of, we need a Eucharistic revival because, because these other people in the church, they, they, they don't know it well enough. Right. I can't wait for them to get on board and and believe about the Eucharist what we believe. Um, but I think part of the idea of having Eucharistic revival is having the the humility to say, there's something about the Eucharist that I don't know yet, that yeah. I need to be revived. Yes. I think back to Thomas Aquinas at the end of his life saying, this, this brilliant theologian and author who's written so much of what we still— uh, hold on to and cite today as we understand our, our uh, theology. And at the end of his life, he has this revelation of Christ in the Eucharist and says, everything I've written is straw. Yes. And if he can have that thought, 
then we who go to even even we who go to daily mass we have the opportunity to learn something new about Christ in this period of eucharistic renewal um that that we're not immune or or like the um we're not the ones who have already made it encouraging others to come along we ought to be engaging ourselves with books like this or with time in in eucharistic adoration to explore and understand more about what the eucharist really means for us as catholics yeah, I think that's very well said. Uh, so two thoughts on this. The first one, that sort of distancing move that you talked about, you know, the Eucharistic revival is for my neighbor. Right. Uh, there's a sense in which I think that happens even on the road to Emmaus. And what I mean by that is we don't know for sure who the two travelers are, but we have what might be a clue. Uh, one of them is named Cleopas. And we know Cleopas and Clopas seem to be the same name with just different spellings. Uh, Hegesippus, the second century chronicler, uh, says that Clopas is the brother of St. Joseph. So if so, that'd be Jesus's uncle. And then he's married to Mary of Clopas, who is the mother of James and Joseph. Who is and at they, the, the, who is at the Yes, yes. The this is an important detail. She's at the crucifixion. She's at the empty tomb. And so if that is who it is, if it, if it's Jesus's aunt and uncle, um, this would, it makes sense of a lot of things. For one, it makes sense of the so-called brothers of the Lord, James and Joseph. We're told elsewhere, they're the, the children of Mary of Clopas. Uh, and so, okay, well, now we know why they're called brothers or cousins. And, and at the time, you know, Hebrew doesn't have a word for cousin. So it makes sense they'd be called that. Uh, but it also makes sense why these two disciples seem to be living together and, you know, they're going home together. Well, because the other one is the wife of the first one. The unnamed one is Clopas's wife. And... Uh, if, if that's right, and that's a big if, but if that's right, it's really interesting the way they talk about it. Cause they say that some have gone to the tomb, you know, some women among yeah. us have, have gone to the tomb. Well, that's one of the two of them was among the women who've gone there, but they're still speaking about it. And with a little bit of safety, a little bit of distance of saying, Oh yeah, we've heard <laughs> somebody yeah. went to the tomb. <laughs> And, just in case, you know, it just, he might be a plant, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating because I think we can easily do that of, of like, yeah, but we can speak in these generalities. We can speak in these abstractions. We can speak about, uh, well, Christians need to grow in. What about you? What about me? Like, what do we actually need? And so that leads to the second point, which is, I think we can easily get into this place where we feel like we've got it all figured out. I was talking to somebody about uh, his spiritual journey. And when he was young, when he was like a teenager, he was reading Aquinas. And then he became an atheist and then became an agnostic. And I think he's back to theism and is maybe kind of open to, I don't know, I don't know where his journey is now. But he was saying that there was this moment in his teenage years where he felt like he had theology figured out because... You know, he was smarter than all of his classmates because he was reading Aquinas. And and so the, the great kind of paradox that Aquinas would say, no, this is just scratching the surface. This is not this source and summit. This is not the, the culminate. This is not comprehending God because you'll never comprehend God because he's bigger than you. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing of we can easily feel like, oh, yeah, I, I've got the Eucharist figured out. And if, if we find ourselves there... That is a great sign that we have no idea how little we know mm -hmm. because there is literally infinitely more <laughs> to the Eucharist. I think back to that, that picture that Augustine presents of the, the person, oh, yeah. the, the little child digging a, a hole on the beach <laughs> yes. and trying to, 
one bucket at a time, fill, fill it with the ocean, right? Yeah. That the ocean is, is infinitely bigger than whatever little pond we dig for ourselves and fill it with, right? And there's infinitely right. more for us to know of God than those things that we've categorized and, and appropriated into our own knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's a couple ways we could react to that. There's a way to react to that where we just kind of despair and say, oh, no, I'll never know it all. <laughs> I would say, don't worry about that. Be content in your smallness while trying to understand as much as you've been given to understand. Yeah. You know, don't be content in your smallness in the sense that you're indifferent to God or wanting to know him better. If you love someone, you want to know them better. You just do. Like if you don't care how your spouse's day was, that's a red flag. Yeah. Likewise, if you don't care about theology and you don't care about finding out more about God, that's a red flag. Something's wrong in the relationship. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you're never going to be able to answer God jeopardy perfectly is, is not a big problem. Uh, there's even a sense in which that smallness can be kind of beautiful. I was, so today I, I went to the hardware store and lunch with my daughter, uh, just to give her, you know, some one-on-one -on -one time. And while we were going, she, she was asking me what I wanted for my birthday, which for the record is like nine months from now. It is not, it's not <laughs> around the corner. And she wanted to know what kind of toys I would want. And it was, it, there was a, no real easy way to answer that question because it was like, well, what would you want to give me? And then she wanted to know about my favorite animals and all this. So it, was, it was very cute. But like, even though the questions she was asking to try to get to know me better in some way were formulated within the confines of a three-year-old's mind. And so I think a lot of times when we approach God, it's the same thing where we're approaching within the framework of here's my world and here's what makes sense. So it's not just that we don't have the answers. Sometimes the questions we're asking may be misdirected, not in a bad way, but just like we're, we're misformulating even the thought of that we're trying to figure out. But despite that, as a father, I could say I was touched by the gesture, even if, you know, I'm not worried about the gift she's going to get me nine months from now. She's not going to remember nine days from now, what, whatever I answered. But there was a, a movement of love trying to know me better, uh, born out of love. And, and so likewise, even when we're grasping poorly, the mere fact we're trying to know and love God more in a humble way is something that I think should give us uh, encouragement. And hopefully this book is an aid for those who are on that journey. It, it comes back to that prayer that, that Thomas Merton prayed that I believe that de the desire to please you does in fact yes. please you. Right. Uh, th that doesn't mean that we leave it there, but right. that, that if, if we, if we leave it there, we don't really desire to please them. <laughs> right. But, but yes, the, the mere fact we're trying <laughs> should count mm -hmm. for something. So you and the subtitle here frame the, the concept of source and summit uh, yes. in a different language. Um, you, you title it or subtitle it, How Christ's Body and Blood Are the Key to Everything We Believe. And sometimes I, for, I think we forget that that's what Source and Summit means, that everything we believe comes from our belief in the Eucharist. And then the Eucharist is also that thing to, which is the culmination and, and the crowning point of our belief. Yeah. So when I wrote Pope Peter, I called it the church's most distinctive doctrine, but I clarified in the beginning that it is not the church's most important doctrine. Right. When we're talking about the Eucharist, we're looking at the most important part of the faith because it's really Jesus. But it's Th not thus, just thus the title. Yes, yes, <laughs> very well, very well put. Uh, but it's not just the most important doctrine, as if it would stand alone by itself. It's also the doctrine that ties everything else together. Mm -hmm. And you know, so think back to like C.S. Lewis talks about how he believes in God 
as he believes in the sun, both the direct evidence, you know, I see the sun, but also the indirect evidence by the sun, I see everything else. Well, likewise, we can say the Eucharist is true both because we can see the direct case for the Eucharist and because through the Eucharist, we can make sense of the rest of theology. And it's that second move that I don't know a lot of books uh, that even attempt to do that. that. That say, how does the Eucharist tie into what we believe about the body? How does the Eucharist tie into what we believe about the covenant? How does it tie into what we believe about the Old Testament sacrificial system or the cross or fill in the blank or your own prayer life or the lives of the saints? You know, how does it make sense of all of those things? Because if we take seriously the idea that in addition to being the summit of the Christian life, it's also the source of the Christian life. Well, that's a really profound radical kind of claim. So can we defend that? And this book is an attempt to. And you mentioned in the Pope Peter book that that's the church's most distinctive doctrine. I think one of the reasons is because the Catholic Church alone has that doctrine right. of of papacy. Whereas in the the Christian kind of sphere of those who claim Christianity, the Eucharist and baptism together are almost almost ubiquitous. Um, that there are a couple of, that are out there that claim to be Christian that that don't have. Uh, any semblance of that, uh, namely, um, what the the well, Salvation Sal- Army, Salvation do. Army, yeah. and I think there's one other. But for the most part, uh, anyone who claims Christ has these two things uh, to some degree or some understanding, even if it's just the Baptist idea of Jesus said to do it, so here we are, we're going to do it, <laughs> right? Um, th- that everyone has some understanding or theology or belief about communion. So I think that it's important for us to understand what do we, what's the difference between what we're celebrating and what the rest of the, the, the Christian, uh, I can't think of the right word here. The, 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 the family will say, right. Family is, is celebrating. Yeah. It's well put. I think the way to get bogged down on this in a boring way is to talk, talking about modes of presence. And I'll, I'll allude to modes of presence. We, we can't escape it. Yeah. But at core, so you, know, you mentioned not every Protestant is a Baptist. Not everyone takes a merely like memorialist view. And right. so if you have something like a Lutheran, they have a much higher Eucharistic theology than a Baptist does. Higher, not just because I think it's like more accurate, but they think more is going on than what a right. Baptist would say is going on. So like objectively higher. Uh, it's, it's not a value judgment there, but it is also for me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I was teaching an RCAA class and one of the young women who was there was Lutheran. And so they believe in consubstantiation. We believe in transubstantiation. And she said, what's the difference? And I said, well, uh, do you worship the Eucharist in Lutheranism? And she said, no. <laughs> and that's the right answer from a Lutheran perspective, right? Like they don't, mm. they think Christ is in with and under the bread and wine, but they still think it's bread and wine. They're not going to worship it that even if Christ is present in some way, you know, Christ is present in my neighbor and I don't offer him incense. Um, you know, they, there's an important distinction between Christ is present in X and X is Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, Christ is present in Nazareth because he's walking around there. Christ is also present in Milwaukee and in, in all the people who live there. There's a really important difference there, a difference of identity. In one case, Jesus 
is the one you're worshiping and the other, you just have Christ present in, in some mysterious way. And we can talk about the different mysterious ways Christ is present. But the key there is that the Eucharist, as the book title says, really is Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's not just a symbol of Jesus. It's not just that Jesus is present in the Eucharist. It's that the Eucharist is Jesus. Now, how Jesus is present there, right? This is where you have to get into the the murkier waters of modes of presence. And this sounds really weird to people because they say, well, what, what do you mean modes of presence? And I would say this, Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm present with them. But he doesn't mean by that, that he's present with them in the same way that he is walking on the shores of Galilee. That is, right. you could have two Christians in Jerusalem gathering together at the same time Christ is appearing to somebody else in Galilee. And he's not just saying, hey, hold on. Those two people are praying to me. I'm going to go there and they'll come back here. And so Christ is present in those two places. And he's present at this point at the right hand of the Father. This is what we call his local presence. He has all kinds of forms of spiritual presence. And if that sounds weird and foreign, because the Bible speaks, it doesn't use the, the language of modes of presence, but Jesus talks about being present in a variety of different ways. I would say the closest analog we have, and it's not a very close one, but it can be a little helpful, is, you know, like right now, you and I are talking via the internet through some weird magic. It's different than if I was present there in the room. Like, am I present with you? In one way, yes. In another way, no. I'm not locally present. My body is still here. And so what does it mean for Christ to be present in the Eucharist? Well, he's present in a fuller way than he is merely spiritually. Not that that's bad. I'm not knocking any of this. Like, right. right. Like he's, you know, in one sense, it is through him that the entire universe is held together in existence. So he is omnipresent. This is one of the things we believe about God, but he has ways of becoming more present. And this is mysterious. Like how can the one who is holding the stars together, the one in whom we exist, Say, when two or more gathered in my name, I'm there with them. Well, he's already introducing another tier or another mode of presence. And then he has something even even deeper with the Eucharist. So all that's to say, Christ is really present, not in the way that he has to leave heaven to come down into the Eucharist, but the Eucharist really is his bodily presence, nevertheless. Uh, in, In technical terms, we'd say he's sacramentally present, but he is really sacramentally present. Really and actually, but not under the physical physical accidents. His accidents are there, but not under the same uh, mode that that physical accidents normally are. Yeah, all- like if, if you were to t- take the Eucharist and put it under a microscope, it's going to look right. like bread. It's going to look like wine. Um, there was a second grader who gave a really helpful. I don't even think a second. It was maybe younger than that. Because what it was, is a, a family had asked if their daughter could receive first communion, and so the priest had gone to the family's house to ask the daughter. Mm-hmm. What does she believe about the Eucharist to see if she was ready to receive early and or wherever they were. And she points to the crucifix and says, that looks like Jesus, but isn't the Eucharist mm-hmm. doesn't look like Jesus, but is and I thought, there it is. You just explain substance and accidents better than a thousand theologians ever could. Yeah. And, and that's, that's all we were trying to say the whole time. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer, staff apologist over at Catholic Answers. You can find his writings and his podcast over at catholic.com, as well as pick up the copy of this book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus, How Christ's Body and Blood Are the Key to Everything We Believe. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere. 
because there's so much more to this conversation right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer about his new book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus. It's available on Catholic Answers Press. You can find it over at catholic.com. And the, the subtitle here is How Christ's Body and Blood are the Key to Everything We Believe. So you spend a little bit of time here in the beginning of the book, Joe, talking about what do we believe about the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And we've spent the first segment talking about that. But the majority of this book is, as you brought up that C.S. Lewis quote, is pointing to how we understand other things in our faith through the Eucharist. Uh, And as you mentioned, this isn't something that's often done in in books, um, that most of the time, if we're talking about the Eucharist, we're talking about the Eucharist and not, oh, here's how the Eucharist relates to resurrection. Here's how the Eucharist relates to worship. Here's how the Eucharist relates to uh, the spiritual life. So with uh, obviously, we don't have time to, to touch every point that you touch in the book, but maybe unpack for us a, a th- a realization that you had or, or an insight that you had as you were going through these chapters that that came to you through the process of writing this book uh, rather than something that you had for a while? What's, what's a new revelation that you received as we're all trying to deepen our own understanding of the Eucharist? Yeah, I'm going to half cheat on this because, okay. I mean, remember, the, the kind of like the original outline of this was a long time ago when I, yeah. I started this sort of uh, when I was in Estonia. Um, but it came to a clearer point, which is that the Eucharist is key to Christianity itself. And I know that sounds weird, maybe to some people. And I would defend it with two claims. Uh, number one, that you don't really understand Christianity unless you understand the, the new covenant. And the way I would say that is to say, well, think about the fact that we call these books the New Testament. New Testament mm-hmm. from Testamentum is a translation of the Greek for new covenant that the early Christians, when they were trying to describe what these 27 books were about, said, well, these are the books that tell us about the new covenant. That's how central early Christians thought the new covenant was to making sense of the Christian story. And so a lot of Christians today say, I don't know what a covenant is. I've never really thought about covenants and given them any sort of theological attention. And I would just say, well, if you don't know what a testament is, and you're reading a book about the New Testament, you're probably going to miss something, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if I'm reading Lord of the Rings and I don't know what a ring is, I should probably find out what that is or else the book's not going to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I'll, I'll still get something, right? I, I can get, oh, it's nice Frodo's carrying something. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to get the full meaning if I don't even know what a ring is. Or if, you know, I was <laughs> trying The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on audio tape with the three-year-old I mentioned earlier. And she said, what's a wardrobe? <laughs> Good question. A closet. Yeah. And, and so it's a real example where, okay, well, if it's right there in the title and you don't know what the word means, we've got to kind of figure this out. So all that's to say, the theology of the covenant is really important 
for understanding Christianity. That's the first point I'd make. The second point is, given this, that this is the story of the creation of the new covenant, that's how the early Christians understood it. How many times do you think Jesus mentions the new covenant? One, exactly. <laughs> you might imagine a, a thousand times, you might imagine hundreds. People are, you know, I've, I've asked crowds this and people will say, oh, a few dozen times? Nope, once. And when is that? Well, as you might imagine, if you've ever been to Mass or if you've picked up the context clue, this is a book about the Eucharist. It's at the Last Supper when he holds up the chalice and says it's the blood of the new covenant. And he said it's the blood that will be poured out for many. Now, this is an important detail in covenant theology that ancient covenants, especially in what they call the Near East or, you know, uh, that the region called the Levant, basically the part of the Middle East that includes Israel, they were created in a few different ways. Uh, they were often created through uh, bloodshed. They were often created or, or solemnized, completed through a ritual meal. So here you have a ritual meal in Christianity where Jesus is holding up what he says is blood and the blood that'll be poured out. And this is really an important claim. Hebrews 9 is going to connect us to the creation of the old covenant. Hebrews 9 talks about how Moses took the blood of animals and he put it on the altar and on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. And this is how the Mosaic covenant is, is enacted. And it's really important for this, that this isn't grape juice. <laughs> if Moses had taken a bunch of grape juice and, and dumped it on the Israelites, not only would they have been totally confused because grape juice didn't exist yet, <laughs> but right. Welch, Welch invents this because he, he's tired of grapes turning into wine because uh, he's a Protestant and doesn't believe in drinking. He's, you know, the type of Protestant who doesn't believe in drinking, I should say. Uh, well, not only would they be baffled by this, but they would also not have just created the covenant. They would just be sticky and, and hot mm -hmm. uh, it, to have the actual covenant. It's important that there's actual blood. And so it matters that Jesus is holding up his actual blood in the chalice. But it also means we don't understand the covenant unless we understand the Eucharist. So those two claims, like the reason I would say we have to understand the Eucharist to understand Christianity, because without the covenant, we don't get the Christian story. And without the Eucharist, we don't get the covenant story. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, I think, particularly hard for us. There's a couple of concepts that, uh, that are tricky for us in the American Catholicism, the Western experience to, to grab a hold of. Um, one is that Jesus is Lord, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the other is this idea of covenant because it has been so completely abolished from our daily life and our daily culture that it makes no sense to us. We're, we're a people of, of litigation and contract, uh, not of covenant. A and so for us to, to ha have to inform our, our Christianity based on this concept that's completely foreign to us that comes from a different place and a different time takes extra legwork. It does. It does. Absolutely. I mean, maybe the clearest way of making quick sense of the covenant in contrast to like a contract, um, Scott Hahn talks about contracts as an exchange of goods and services and covenants as exchanges of people. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something to that kind of, it, it's a simplified distinction in some ways, but there's a real sense in which you can hire someone to mow the lawn and, you know, 
uh, take care of your kids and do this, that, and the other thing. And you can have all those as contracts. We can get married. And then, <laughs> oh, look, now that I'm married, I'm expected to mow the lawn, take care of the kids and do these other things. <laughs> There's, that doesn't mean I have a contract, right? Like I, right. my wife would be hard pressed to say, well, here's where it's written that this is your job. You know, they, Fortunately, it doesn't come to that. But, you know, like there's there's a really critical distinction. Likewise, if someone's mowing your lawn, it doesn't mean they're your husband. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're married to them. And so that that kind of distinction between this is work I'm doing for pay, this is a good or service I'm exchanging for some other good or service, uh, compared to this is an exchange of people and this this is a covenant explaining what the terms of the relationship are. That is a really critical distinction. We talk about Christianity being a relationship. You know, it's a very popular kind of way of expressing that. And rightly understood, that's true. But a good relationship has boundaries and it has terms. Now, those terms are often implicit. But you violate them and you you find out really quickly. You know, mm -hmm. if you stay out all night without calling home or if you decide to start dating while you're married... Uh, you'll find out very quickly, hey, you broke one of the rules. And maybe it was a written rule, maybe it was an unwritten rule. But there are a lot of rules in any healthy relationship. And so the covenant is sort of the enshrining of those rules to the relationship. And so when we understand something like biblical ethics, we should be understanding it through the category of relationship. Otherwise, you end up with a kind of moralism that there's just like this rule book. Yeah. And the rule book is not how you want to make sense of a covenant. So if, you know, someone who'd never heard of marriage just heard the, the last couple minutes of this episode, they might say, whatever that marriage thing is, sounds hard. You got to do work. You got to do this, that, and the other thing. And sure, all of that is included, but those aren't a bunch of rules where that's what it means to be married. Those are things that flow from the relationship in a really organic kind of way with the right understanding of the relationship. And so too, like the yes to the relationship is really key to putting ethics and morality and all of that in its proper place, or you have kind of a godless Christianity. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a kind of thought process that it, we're seeing people react against the whole rise of the nuns, the whole uh, rise of people who are saying, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Um, that often is in direct response to what Christian Smith titled uh, moral and therapeutic, therapeutic deism. Yeah. Yeah. That this idea that God exists and he's there to, uh, to make me a better person at, by following this set of rules. And I, you find that across the board, you find it in Catholicism, you find it in Protestantism, not so much top down, but as, as, trying to make sense of what Christianity is largely when, you know, you're trying to raise your kids, you raise yeah, the kids yeah. to do right and wrong. And they never move beyond that idea of this is right. And this is wrong. And that's what Christianity is about into that place of relationship. Uh, and if you don't have a relational center to this, this faith, then it does just become a set of rules. Yes. I think that's very well said. And I think this is, so there's a couple of things. One, you, you see this often in the atheist or nun formulation about whether you can be good without God, mm -hmm. which is like saying, can you mow the lawn without being married? Like, yeah, yeah. but that's really not the point. And yeah. what, do, what do you mean by good in, in the case of being good without God? Do you mean, can you follow some kind of ethical code? Of course you can. Can you be morally upright in a way you don't sin? Of course you can't. And mm -hmm. anyone who's ever lived for more than a week and has any kind of ethical code worth 
even the name knows those two facts that, you know, you can have a code you could live by and you can find that you fall short of your own moral standards apart from God, apart from the question of grace, apart from any of those things. We know the just man falls seven times mm -hmm. and everyone who's tried to live uprightly knows that too. And the only people who don't know that are ones who've set the bar for themselves so astonishingly low or who lack so much self-awareness that they're just unaware of how much they're failing their neighbors and how much they're failing themselves on a, on a regular basis. And I don't say that to be a curmudgeon. I'm not even saying that they're worse at this than I am. I'm saying that maybe they're less aware of their own shortcomings. That's it. So, so oh yeah, but all I'm saying with that is like, that is, a, that's imagining that the point of Christianity is that if I have a relationship with God, then I can find out the secret rule book by which I can live life and then I can be ethical. And that's a I, really impoverished view of God. I got to ask a question that you may mm -hmm. not immediately have an answer to. And we're, we're going to, we're going to step out in an uncharted territory. Can every person who's raised in the faith has to have this, this point of conversion where they realize that it's more than about the right and the wrong and the rules and the, the concrete realities that we thought of as a child, do this, don't do that. Um, into a place of maturity and nuance and relationship. Can you recall for you, was there an aha moment in your maturing where you realized that difference and transitioned from the one into the other? That's a great question. I don't think it was a single moment. I think it was actually a series of, yeah, really a series of steps in young adulthood where I questioned, here were things that I was brought up to believe. And, you know, do I think I really do have to do that? Do I think I really don't have to do that? And I had a lot of internal rules for myself beyond, I think, even what my parents had kind of given me uh, in trying to, trying to have control probably more than even trying to be moral, if I'm being totally honest. Like, I think I thought at the time I was trying to be moral. And I think looking back, I was trying to be in control, uh, trying to have something I was like the master over. And that it actually wasn't spiritually healthy, even like the, I mean, not only was I falling short of my own standards, but what I was trying to do was a sketchy task at best. So over time, as I started to really probe those things and say, do I believe this? Is there a good reason to believe that? Some of those things got torn down or they got reaffirmed kind of for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And then after that had happened enough time, it was not, in other words, like I just looked at the whole schema of what's my relationship with God like. It was more that I could kind of look back and say, oh yeah, I used to be much more legalistic. Yeah. And why was that? And only then did I slowly start to realize like, oh, okay, I was trying to earn it with God. And that's mm -hmm. not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Um, but but I don't think there was a single moment. I think this, this actually took me years to kind of figure that yeah. out. And by the time I figured it out, I'd largely shifted in my relationship with him without kind of having mentally realized that was what was going on. Mm -hmm. The book is The Eucharist is Really Jesus. As we're here in the Eucharistic Revival and you are uh, attempting to revive and renew your understanding of Christ in the Eucharist, if you find yourself in a place where you are just looking at things as trying to measure up and some set of rules that you're following and you want to enter into that relationship, don't be afraid of those questions, of questioning the things you've always believed, holding them up to the light of Christ, holding them up to the Eucharist, because by this 
key doctrine, we see all of the things. So find a trusted uh, advisor, spiritual director, walk through those hard questions and come to this revelatory understanding of Christ and the Eucharist and realize that no matter what your belief in it is now, no matter how strong you are in it, it is still a revelatory belief that you can grow in depth. Joe, thanks for being on the show with us here today. Absolutely my pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Joe Heschmeyer, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends over on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. If you want to hear this episode or other episodes where Joe has been on, just go to the guest list, scroll down until you find the name Joe Heschmeyer there. You'll see all 22 episodes with him, including this one. Go back and listen through them. And if you can't get enough, well, I've got good news. There is more. There's always more. Because each and every week we record an extra segment where we dive a little bit deeper into the topic and we make that segment available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air and in gratitude, we like to give them a little bit extra. You can learn more by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking that Patreon link there in the menu bar, and there you'll find some of those older extra segments that are now available to the public and consider becoming a part of that community to get those weekly extra segments uh, right as they come out. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, Biblical Commentaries, Original Language Research, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. At that time, Jesus exclaimed, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to little ones. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That reading again comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, and there's a couple of things that stand out to me as I as I read that and ponder it. The first is this, just like we were talking about earlier, we can't assume that that we have it all figured out and that somehow by virtue of our discipleship and by virtue of our devotion, somehow we have a leg up. Rather, we come as little ones because we see other other places in Scripture that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And here we see that God the Father has hidden these things from the wise and the learned. And so far be it from us to assume that that's our station, rather to seek that humility, to seek to approach God as a child of God, as one of these little ones, knowing that in that moment, in that moment where we feel weak and burdened and heavy laden, in those places, he gives rest for our souls and also gives us that closeness, that intimacy, uh, helps us 
to restore and renew our souls. And he does that, as we've been talking this whole whole day today, through the Eucharist. We hear a little bit about that as we come into our reading from Church History, which comes from a treatise on the mysteries by St. Ambrose. We see that grace can accomplish more than nature. Yet so far we have been considering instances of what grace can do through a prophet's blessing. If the blessing of a human being had power even to change nature, what do we say of God's action and the consecration itself, in which the very words of the Lord and Savior are effective? If the words of Elijah had power even to bring down fire from heaven, will not the words of Christ have the power to change the natures of the elements? You have read that in creation of the whole world, he spoke and they came to be. He commanded, and they were created. If Christ could by speaking create out of nothing what did not yet exist, can we say that his words are unable to change existing things into something they previously were not? It is no lesser feat to create new natures for things than to change their existing natures. What need is there for argumentation? Let us take what happened in the case of Christ himself and construct the truth of this mystery from the mystery of the Incarnation. Did the birth of the Lord Jesus from Mary come about in the course of nature? If we look at nature, we regularly find that conception results from the union of a man and a woman. It is clear, then, that the conception by the Virgin was above and beyond the course of nature. And this body that we make present is the body born of the Virgin. Why do you expect to find in this case that nature takes its ordinary course in regard to the body of Christ when the Lord Jesus himself was born of a Virgin in a manner above and beyond the order of nature? This is indeed the true flesh of Christ, which was crucified and buried. This is then in truth the sacrament of his flesh. The Lord Jesus himself declares, This is my body. Before the blessing contained in these words, a different thing is named. After the consecration, a body is indicated. He himself speaks of his blood. Before the consecration, something else is spoken of. After the consecration, blood is designated. And you say, Amen. That is, it is true. What the mouth utters, let the mind within acknowledge. What the word says, let the heart ratify. So the church, in response to grace so great, exhorts her children, exhorts her neighbors to hasten to these mysteries. Neighbors, she says, come and eat. Brethren, drink and be filled. In another passage, the Holy Spirit has made clear for you what you are to eat, what you are to drink. Taste, the prophet says, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. Christ is in that sacrament, for it is the body of Christ. It is therefore not bodily food, but spiritual. Thus the apostle too says, speaking of its symbol, our fathers ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. For the body of God is spiritual, and the body of Christ is that of a divine spirit. 
for Christ is the Spirit. We read, the Spirit before our face is Christ the Lord. And in the letter of St. Peter, we have this, Christ died for you. Finally, it is this food that gives strength to our hearts, this drink which gives joy to the heart of man, as the prophet has written. That reading again comes from this, uh, comes from a treatise on the mysteries by St. Ambrose Bishop. And as I sit with this, and, and it's, it's such a, a wrestling point that, um, that the church fathers point out. And, and as Joe mentioned earlier, it, it's this, I, this, this idea that what we see uh, is not necessarily indicative of reality in all cases, but specifically in this case. What looks like Jesus, as we look at, at the image of the crucifix, that thing is, is a representation of Jesus. It, it, it uh, stands as an image, as a reminder of Jesus. But what doesn't look like Jesus, that, that bread, that host, and the, the, the cup and the chalice, uh, that which does not have the appearance of Jesus is Jesus. It doesn't represent, it represents Jesus to us. It can be hard to wrap our minds around because we do come from such a, uh, a scientist, science, scientism kind of culture that wants to think that all things that are actual are material, are physical, are, are testable. And so the idea that Christ becomes present to us in the Eucharist seems foreign to us because we can, as Joe says, we can take that, that host and we can put it under a microscope and we can tell definitively what that host is made of, right? We can uh, parse it out and we can check all the DNA and figure out, figure out all of the materials that went into making that host. But that only tells us the makeup of something. It doesn't tell us uh, what the thing is. And this is what the, the fathers get to, is this question of natures, this question of, of substance, is the way that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas would talk about it. Is has nothing really to do with what a thing is made of. Rather, it has to do with what the thing is, the isness of it. And so, as we come and we approach the Eucharist and we uh, we go to receive Christ in the Eucharist, it's not a physical presence that we receive, although it is a physical sacrament that we take. But we are receiving the fullness, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Uh, under the auspices of bread and wine, uh, fully him, it is Jesus. It is made of these other things, the, the accidents, the, the wheat and the, the fermented grape. And so we go and we approach this mystery and we have to adjust our perspective to that perspective of uh, accepting the spiritual reality and ex- ex- uh, accepting the true reality of something uh, while coming to understand that it's we're not speaking of a material thing, we're speaking of a a profound reality that that supersedes that physical reality that we face every day. Uh, we could talk about this on and on and on, and we just simply don't have time. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in today. Today's show was brought to you. Uh, by by Brandy Carey and all of those who support the show through Patreon. 
go over to outsidethewalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media. Facebook is uh, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads. It's a new thing now. Threads is also at step outside the walls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.